I'm delighted to welcome Stuart Pym. He's a professor of conservation ecology at Duke University. He's founder of SavingSpecies.org. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed. So you are an expert on species extinction, present day extinction. But before we talk about extinction, I wanted to talk to you about the proliferation of species on this planet untold, many still unknown, probably, species. You did a kind of an audit of life on Earth that was published a little over 15 years ago that included data on all kinds of life, all kinds of species, and how much of it we human beings use up every year. Tell us a little bit about that project. Well, the most fundamental question we can ask about our interaction with the living world is how much of it we use. It's rather like the interest on a bank account. You want to live off the interest, you don't want to live off the principle. So it's not a matter of, about asking how much all the trees and all the bushes weigh, it's a matter of how much new biomass, new green stuff is produced each year. And the answer is on land about 130 billion tons, so billions and billions, to sound like Carl Sagan. How much of that do we use? About 40%. So we're already consuming a fairly large fraction of the world's, we call it primary productivity, but the sort of the interest on the biological bank account. And I think we have to be worried about that because as we use um, a lot of it, we're not always using it sustainably. So, for example, we are progressively destroying the world's forests. Um, making them go up in smoke, which is a major contributor to global warming. We are massively over-harvesting the ocean's fisheries. There's a number of ways in which we're destroying the world around us that isn't sustainable, and we're going to have to do something about that sooner or later. Sooner or later, indeed. I mean, we are talking continually about tipping points and, and whether we've even passed them. Well, I'm not a big fan of tipping points because the evidence for them is not particularly compelling. But be that as it may, that's the sort of you know, getting into the weeds of, of scientific disputes. The simple reality is that, uh, you know, look around you. I mean, the evidence of our not being sustainable is as close as your nearest grocery store. If you go to the fish market part portion of your grocery store, what you see is first of all fish from all over the world that have been brought in frozen. And then you're also seeing a huge amount of farm-raised fish. You know, the salmon that you buy is mostly farm-raised. The other big fish on the, uh, on the slab is tilapia, which I personally despise. I think tilapia is awful. Be that as it may, the idea that we're using the ocean's fisheries sustainably is easily rejected by you look at how far we have to go to get those fish and how little of our fisheries are now wild caught and how much of it is, is being farmed. Um, uh, there are other stories too, you know, with the advent of Google Earth, you can look at, uh, you look at the entire planet and see very clearly in large parts of the tropics that that we're destroying the tropical moist forests. We are destroying rangelands so that they are no longer as productive for our cattle and our other livestock as they used to be. There's a lot of evidence that we're not living in a way that uh, will allow us to continue to do so. So how do you study present day extinction? How do you establish 
what species you have in a given place and then follow those species and their numbers over time? Well, in terms of looking at how fast species are going extinct, it's very much like calculating a death rate. You know, so if I wanted to know whether um, Santa Fe, New Mexico was a good place to live, I might look at the obituary notices and tally up how many people are dying per year and work out how many people there are and look at the death rate. And if too many people are dying, then it's not going to be a healthy place to live. That's exactly what we do with species. We look at how many species there are, uh, we look at when they succumb, uh, and we calculate a death rate. Um, and that death rate, we know, is now a thousand times faster than what it should be. We're killing species off at a very, very large rate. Now, in terms of what we know, those sort of numbers are based on, on birds and mammals and amphibians, mostly. Um, you know, millions of people around the world are passionate bird watchers. So, you know, but what about other things? What about, you know, plants and butterflies and, and things that are not so well known? And there are some wonderful uh, advances there. One of them is, is a fantastic little app that you can put on your cell phone. It's called iNaturalist. It was uh, created in part by um, Scott Lowry when he was a, a graduate student with me in, in the very office where I'm talking. And iNaturalist allows people to photograph a bug, photograph a butterfly, photograph a plant, whatever, put it up onto, onto the web and encourage other people to identify it for, for them. In the first few years, it took a million observations to, to be acquired in, I don't know what it was, two or three years. The second million observations came within 10 months. And Scott tells me that in a few years' time, they hope to be getting a million observations a month. So there are opportunities out there to what we call crowdsource information so that people can monitor uh, what's going on, where species are, where they're turning up perhaps in new places because the climate is warming, uh, species that ought not to be there because they are pests perhaps. We can find a lot more about what's going on in the world if, if we get people engaged. And there's this wonderful free app, um, which is great fun and, uh, and, and can engage a lot of people to become individual monitors of, of the life around us. Citizen scientists. Citizen science. So where on earth are the greatest threats to species? What places are most vulnerable? Well, the important thing about protecting species around the planet is that some places are much more important than others. So there are large areas that have pretty much the same species as occur everywhere else. But there are some places, we call them biodiversity hotspots, where there are unique species, where species occur and don't occur anywhere else. In the United States, Hawaii, for example, has a spectacular variety of species that are found nowhere else on the planet. California does. To a lesser extent, places in the western United States do. The southeastern United States does. And then elsewhere, there are places like the northern Andes, the coastal forests of Brazil, Madagascar, Southeast Asia. And the point about this is because places where species are at risk are concentrated, 
we can concentrate our efforts. And when we go to these places, we often find that the, the forest that remains there, for example, is often in, in pieces, in fragments. Um, there's some forest remaining, but it's in, it's in little patches. And the thing about little patches is that species can't maintain viable populations for very obvious reasons. You know, you might have a patch of forest and there are two females in a patch, uh, you know, three miles away. There may be a patch with two males. Well, if the females don't get together with the males and produce babies, you don't need a PhD in biology to understand <laughs> that. But you have to find a way of connecting the patches together. So I run a nonprofit called Saving Species, if you don't mind making a plug, at www.savingspecies.org. And what we do at Saving Species is we work with local conservation groups in, in Colombia and Ecuador and Brazil and many other countries around the world to help them buy land and reforest land, to, to replant native, native trees so that we can reconnect these fragmented landscapes together. It's a very, very cost-effective way of preventing species from going extinct. Not coincidentally, it also means that we're planting a lot of native forest and that helps suck up carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so, it, you know, it does something to, to offset carbon emissions and the global warming that it causes. When you think about species extinction, and a lot of people have become aware of what's going on in other remote places of the planet to Americans, people think about elephants and tigers and gorillas and monkeys. Do you think about individual species or do you think about the whole ecosystem when you're looking at preventing extinction? Uh, yes, so the answer is they come hand in glove. You can't separate one from the other. And in fact, the U.S. Endangered Species Act says very clearly the purpose of the act is to protect species and the ecosystems on which they depend. You can't do one without the other. So, you know, famously, uh, a decade or two ago, there were concerns about the northern spotted owl in the old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest. It wasn't just about the owl. It was about, you know, 200 other species which are unique inhabitants of those forests. One of the famous early stories of an endangered species was about a little fish called the snail darter, which lived in a river in Tennessee. And a lot of people said, you know, are you trying to stop progress building a dam to protect this, you know, obscure little fish? And the answer was yes, but yes, we also wanted to protect the last free flowing river in the Appalachians. So it's always about the species and it's always about the ecosystem. So, you know, we sometimes make the species the poster child of what we're trying to do. The first project we did at Saving Species involved a charismatic little monkey called the golden lion tamarind. Um, and the golden lion tamarind lives in, in the forests of coastal Brazil. That's our poster child. But, but you know what? It's also a poster child for 20 species of threatened birds, you know, countless species of threatened butterflies and plants. It's all part of a package. And when we connect these landscapes by reforesting corridors, 
you know, we're doing it for everything. We're doing it for all the species involved. You use the term CPR for the earth, and CPR stands for connect, protect, and restore. So connect means putting those connections back between fragments. Protection and restoration go hand in hand with that? Yes. I mean, we want the term CPR for earth because, you know, if somebody's on the edge of death, you know, CPR saves them. And it's the same analogy, and it fortuitously has the same initials. So we connect these isolated fragments, we protect them, we want to make sure that they're not going to be harmed. And then the key element is this restoration of of planting these typically degraded landscapes with with native vegetation, typically native trees. So we can put the patches of, of forest back together again. A few years ago, and the project in Brazil, I got a very excited phone call from a colleague in Brazil, and she said, you know, Stuart, I've got such great news, I found puma poop. (laughs) I went home to my wife and said, we found puma poop today. Uh, And Julia said, you've got to be kidding me. And I said, well, here's the deal. It means that pumas, mountain lions, are now moving through this forest corridor that we have created. The once isolated patch of forest is now no longer isolated. The, the pumas are moving through it. Uh, the gold line tamarins are moving through it. So CPR is, is a matter of, of, yes, of connecting, of protecting, and, and restoring the connectivity on the landscape. What are the economic implications of doing that CPR, connect, protect, restore, doing that kind of work of saving species, of saving ecosystems? Do you see, I mean, the places where you've done work and you've worked all over the world, do you see it as a matter of the, you know, the environment versus jobs? Or do you see jobs and saving species as going together? What are you actually looking at? Give us some examples. They go together, and I'd actually like to come back to to New Mexico to talk about some examples, if I may. What we do is always based in local communities. It's always engaging the local communities. It's always the local communities who are doing the work and with whom we work. But look, let's talk about New Mexico. The first national monument I ever saw was White Sands. I'm a native New Mexican. I spent my first three years in the United States in New Mexico. So New Mexico is my home state. Ah. Um, I read an article in the Alamogordo paper the other day about how much White Sands National Monument is worth. I think the number was something like $30 million a year. You know, so if you're going to go to White Sands, you're going to buy your gas and you're going to buy your, your, your Cokes and everything else in Alamogordo, right? The Organ Mountains, which is a national monument uh, at the, as the backdrop of Las Cruces. What's that worth to the people of, of Las Cruces, which used to be my hometown? It's worth a huge amount of money. Nature is worth a huge amount of money. Why do people move to to Santa Fe? Why do they move to northern New Mexico? Because it's a beautiful part of the world. Now, I'm saying this with a certain degree of anger and frustration because our national monuments are currently under threat. And I think it's very important for us to realize what they're worth in just purely you know, hard-nosed economic terms that people like to live in or near beautiful places, and we spend a lot of money to visit them. 
I'm doing a lot of work in Colombia, in South America. In fact, I'm off to Colombia the day after tomorrow. Colombia has just emerged from 50 years of an awful civil war. As peace begins to spread across more of the landscape, Colombia has a huge opportunity to develop tourism, particularly ecotourism and particular birdwatching tourism. Colombia has 20% of the world's birds in 1% of the land area. It is the bird watching capital of the world. Well, what that means is lots and lots of people want to go to Colombia and they want to go to rural places and they want to see special birds. They want to go to the four different mountain ranges that Colombia has. It's three separate rainforests, the Amazon, the Caribbean, coast forest, the Pacific coast forest, and they want to see birds. And when they do that, they're going to want to stay in places. They want, they're going to want to eat. They want to have guides. There's a huge opportunity there to encourage people to have different careers than violence, different careers than growing coca leaves. You know, there's a huge potential for that country to gain a huge peace dividend by, by encouraging ecotourism. Um, and so what we try to do is we, we always work with local communities and we try to find ways to give them an alternative path. Can't go in there and tell them what to do. That's never works and it would be presumptuous. But we can work with local communities and give them an alternative vision of how they can have sustainable lives. One piece of the economic picture that you're talking about is ecotourism, as you say. There's another piece, which is agriculture. I mean, so much of the problem of deforestation, for example, has to do with agriculture, clearing that land to grow food of one kind or another. What do you see in the realm of doing agriculture in a way that's compatible with conservation? Well, first of all, we all have to eat. So I'm fully aware that some land conversion um, is a central land conversion to provide a place for people to grow crops and crops that feed them. But the ultimate tragedy is how much of the world we destroy for almost no good reason at all. The areas that we are reforesting in Brazil and in Colombia and Ecuador and elsewhere were areas where poor people destroyed the forest. It was too poor for crops. So it's not that they can grow food there. It's often on steep mountain slopes where the soil washes away. And it's really, really bad grazing land. And that land is worth more for soaking up carbon out of the atmosphere than it is for growing cattle. You know, carbon is a better crop than cattle are. So many of the areas that we help local communities purchase are just really awful cattle pasture, where the cattle are starving. It's an appallingly inefficient way of using the land. And we say, look, there are better ways of, of using the land than this. There's something like seven or eight million square kilometers. That's almost the size of the continental U.S., um, that's just bad land. It's, it's once was tropical forest. It's been cleared. All that 
burnt trees have gone into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, and it's growing almost no cattle. It's not contributing very much to, to anybody. Uh, we need to stop that. We need to find more more productive uses of the land. There are organizations like yours, Saving Species. There are universities and so many students who are becoming engaged in conservation in one way or another. You know, national organizations, international community, all doing great work. What about the governments in the countries where you're working? What kinds of policy decisions, good and bad, are you seeing with respect to the conservation work? It's a mixed bag. I think the important thing to learn about conservation is it's like politics. It is politics. And politics is famously local. All politics is local. All conservation is local. So if you get the local communities engaged, if you get them on your side, as it were, if you work with them, then to a large degree, what happens in national governments doesn't make an awful lot of difference. If the local people are behind you, that's 95% of the problem. But there are certainly um, government solutions. Brazil was able to reduce its deforestation in the Amazon by 90% with a binational agreement with Norway. Um, The Norwegian government uh, gave Brazil a billion dollars and said, you know, we'll continue to give you money if you stop chopping down the Amazon. And Brazil, for a decade or 15 years or so, has massively reduced its rate of deforestation. Now, that's under threat, and, and I don't need to go into the complicated details of Brazil's government at the moment. Uh, but nonetheless, governments can do good things. But, you know, it's sort of rather like our own government. We may have moved officially out of the Paris Accords, but whether we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions is going to depend on, you know, what California does and the Northeast does and other states do, New Mexico does. I mean, it's going to depend on on local solutions. And if we choose to make decisions on a town by town, city by city, state by state basis, whatever our government in D.C. does, that's going to be much less relevant. Tell us about your work with young people and teaching them both to be scientists and to be activists. You know, I think I have the most fantastic job. It's a job involving mentoring young people. And I take that very broadly. So, yes, I mentor undergraduates when they arrive on my doorstep at you know, 18 years old at Duke. But I'm also involved in, in a wonderful group of young people in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who are beginning to realize that there are things that they can do. There are things that they can do to learn about what's happening to our planet. There are actions they can take. And, you know, we live in a democracy and we have not only the opportunity, but I would say the right and the responsibility to engage our politicians and, you know, tell them what we want them to do. And I believe that that's a process that should start you know, very early that we should be encouraging our, our children to, to learn what the facts are, learn what the issues are, and share those concerns with our elected representatives. Stuart Pym is professor of conservation ecology at Duke University. He's founder of Saving Species, which is on the web at savingspecies.org. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much indeed. It's always a pleasure doing things like this.